This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. Has anyone heard of the salesman test where you ask someone to sell you a pen? Have you ever heard of that before? Maybe you heard about it on a TV show or a movie. It's the idea of like, let's see how good of a salesman you are. Here's a pen. Let's see if you can make me buy it from you. Have you ever heard of that? Well, there's, there's three different approaches that a salesman might take to try to convince you to buy their pen. The first is called the value-added approach. And it's the idea that they try to show you the perks of the pen to convince you that it has value that your current pen doesn't already have. They might say things like, this pen is gold. It positions you as a person. It shows them that you're valuable because of what it's made out of. This pen has refillable ink cartridges. You'll never have to buy a pen again. This pen writes more smoothly than any other pen. It has all these perks. You should buy it from me. Maybe another approach they may take is called the solution-based approach. They might ask what you're looking for in a pen. Are you in the market? What kind of needs do you have? And I can meet those needs by selling you my pen. What color pen are you in the market for? What's the most important thing that you're looking for when you buy a pen? What are the strengths and weaknesses of your previous pen? And then there's the third solution. It's called the problem creation approach. And this is where the seller tries to convince you that you have a problem you didn't even know you had. You need this pen. Your current pen is failing you. Life is not getting on unless you happen to have the pen that they're selling. They have to convince you that what they have is better than what you already have. In fact, you need what they have. And what's crazy is that at any moment, the buyer could cut right through that smoke screen by simply realizing that they have a perfectly sufficient pen already. That the one they have is working just fine. They don't need to buy a pen. What Paul is unpacking in Colossians tonight is that Jesus is sufficient. And whatever philosophies the world tries to bring, whatever ideas that are sold to us, that are saying that what we have is not as good as what they have to offer, that those are all lies. They're empty. They're just deceit, as Paul is going to describe it. So let's turn our Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Congratulations, we're five weeks in. And we are in Colossians chapter 2. I'm loving this study. I hope you guys are liking it too. I'm learning so much. Colossians chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 1. Thank you guys for those of you who are bringing your physical Bibles. I hope this is so much easier so you can see things that I reference, what's tied back. You can see similar words being used over and over again. There's so much value to having your own Bible in your lap. Verse 1. Paul has already said this several times, but he says right here again, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. 
And he's already said this several times, that he's burdened for them, that he's praying for them, that he's suffering on their behalf, but he's rejoicing to suffer on their behalf. And yet he's never even met them face to face. He mentions Laodicea. They're the closest city to Colossae. They're only about nine miles away. But even though he hasn't met the Colossians face to face, he still loves them. He's still joyfully working for them, even suffering for them, for their sake, but not just so that they may have good lives, but he's working and suffering so that they could know Jesus. Everything he's doing is so that they might know him. Let's keep going. For that their hearts, talking about them, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of the understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ. That's a mouthful, but there's three different things he's wanting them to get. One, he's wanting them, if you look, he's saying he wants them to be encouraged, that he wants them to be knit together or unified together, and that he wants them to have all the riches of assurance. Assurance in what? That they have understanding and knowledge of God's mystery. That they have assurance in Jesus Christ. This is referenced earlier in verse 126 that we studied a couple weeks ago. He says, the mystery, just like he talks about here, the mystery which is in Christ. The mystery for ages and generations has now been revealed to his saints. The mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So why are Christians, why can Christians be encouraged? Why? What encouragement do Christians have? They're encouraged because Christ is in them. Why can Christians be unified, knit together, having the same purpose? Because Christ is with them. And why can Christians have assurance? Christians can walk every day no matter what suffering comes because they have assurance in God's promises. They can go to death with peace. Why? They have assurance. Why? Because Jesus is leading. He's with them. He's in them, and he's leading them. Think of the power of those three words, of encouragement, of unity, and of assurance. Back in 1970, there was a basketball player named Willis Reed. He was on the, on the Knicks, and the Knicks were in their sixth game, actually in the fifth game of the championship, when he tore a muscle in his thigh. He could barely walk. He had to sit out the sixth game, but whenever they got to the championship game, game seven, the Knicks had three wins, the Lakers had three wins. This was the game that was going to settle all the bets, the bets of who the championship was going to be in the NBA. And right now, the Knicks were the underdogs. Because at the time, the Lakers had Wilt Chamberlain, who was the highest scoring basketball player of all time at that point. He had 100 points in one game. He was the colossus to defeat. But he had torn. He was the MVP of his team. He was recognized as the leader of his team. But with a torn muscle, would he be able to go against this titan of Wilt Chamberlain? And there at the game, in game seven, everyone waited to see if he would show up or not. And he came limping down the stairs of the stadium towards his team. 
And when that happened, one of the announcers said he was even just dragging his leg with him in the pain. But the sight of him had an exhilarating effect on the crowd. They went wild. It was said that it was deafening in the, state, in the stadium. Here comes the leader of the team, the injured leader who is limping down the stairs about to take his place in uniform to go to battle against the Goliath of the Lakers at that time. And as he's coming down and the team sees him, they rally. It says that it was so loud and the team responded with so much enthusiasm that the Lakers stopped their warm-ups to turn and watch what was going on. His own player said that he wasn't sure if he was going to win, but whenever he saw him coming down the steps, he knew they had a chance at this game. And Willis Reed went into the game, and he was in the game long enough to score two jump shots, and then finally the pain overtook him, so he had to leave. But the momentum that he brought, the leadership that he brought, the rallying cry that was around him drove their team to defeat the Lakers and win the NBA championships. It was his inspiration, overcoming pain, coming back when they were expecting him to stay home and to watch from the sidelines. How much more encouragement does a Christian have? How much more unity should the body of Christ have? How much more assurance should we have that Jesus came back and he is leading us through life towards eternity with a guaranteed win? Shouldn't that be encouragement for us? Shouldn't that knit us together with under one banner? Shouldn't that push us with assurance that no matter what happens today, my captain is on the court. To Paul, this reality is the most valuable thing the Colossians can have. It's worth suffering for them to reach it. It's the understanding and the knowledge of Jesus Christ and that he is with them, that he is in them and that they are in Christ. Let's keep going to verse three. So Christ, he is the mystery revealed. Christ in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All. How much wisdom? How much knowledge? All. There is none left behind. It is all encompassing. The totality of wisdom and knowledge can be found in Christ. Right now, he's talking to a Hellenized culture. That's like the Greeks have influenced this culture. Now, to the Greeks... The philosophers, to them, the highest that man could achieve is to have great wisdom. That was the pursuit. You have arrived if you get to be sitting among the greats, talking about things that are way over everyone else's heads, that you have wisdom. It was the pursuit of the Greek philosophers, of the Greek culture. Achieve wisdom. And Paul here is so clearly saying all that wisdom that our worldly culture is pushing, it can all be found in Jesus. All the knowledge can be found in Jesus. Take a look at this. Turn your Bibles to Proverbs. Keep your thumb in Colossians, but turn your Bibles to Proverbs. Cut the Bible down the middle. You'll hit Psalms, Proverbs, or Isaiah. If you're in Psalms, go right. If you're in Isaiah, go left. Proverbs chapter 2. We're going to start right there at the first verse.
Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1. This is Solomon, the reputed wisest man who ever lived. And he's passing his teaching down to his son. Except we get to have the benefits of that teaching, which is the book of Proverbs, or a majority of it. Proverbs chapter 2, we start in verse 1. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments within you, like pay attention. If you think that I have something to offer you, now is the time to listen. Making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight. So if your heart desires wisdom, if your heart desires knowledge, pay attention and raise your voice for understanding. Verse 4, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasure. Hey, look, treasure. Paul was referencing Proverbs 2 when he was writing this to Colossians. If you seek it like silver and search for it just like hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. So where do we find wisdom? That's right. The Lord. It's from the Lord's mouth that he gives knowledge, that he gives wisdom. The treasures, the hidden treasures of knowledge and wisdom come from God. So what is wisdom? Let's define it for a minute. And I'm going to give you a different definition than probably what you're used to in English class or vocab lessons or whatever. What is wisdom? What is godly biblical wisdom? Now, the definition that at face value would say, well, that you have knowledge and experience and you're able to sum all of it up together so that you can know what decision to make in different circumstances. Because circumstances are all different. And having wisdom helps us navigate those different circumstances. But I want to show you a biblical understanding of wisdom. Turn your Bibles again with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Let's go back to the New Testament. It's the last quarter of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then continue after that. Nope. As long as you keep your finger in Colossians. Ephesians Chapter 5. I think you guys were turning with me. I'm going to try to keep it limited to only four or five times on a Wednesday night so we're not like doing crazy Bible drills. But these are ones I want you to see for yourself. Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 15. This is Paul again, and he's comparing wisdom to foolishness, wise and unwise. Are you ready for this? Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Okay, I'm with you. I want to walk wise. Making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish. Okay, I don't want to be foolish. I want to be wise. But understand, there's that understanding, what the will of the Lord is. So you have foolishness compared with wisdom, and wisdom here is defined as knowing the will of of the Lord. So as you approach situations in life and you say, well, how do I have wisdom with money? The question now becomes, well, what is God's will for your money? Well, how do I have wisdom with a romantic relationship? 
What's God's will for a romantic relationship? How do I have wisdom in friendships? How do I have wisdom with my grades? How do I have wisdom with my friends? How do I have wisdom with my enemies? What's the wisdom for this situation? The answer is what is God's will for that situation? And then you have wisdom. You have the kind of wisdom that's like a hidden treasure, like gems, like silver worth pursuing. Why? Because the Lord is at the center. It's a fear of the Lord. We reverence and respect the Lord. We fear him so that we follow his will in every situation. Knowledge. What is godly knowledge? We're talking about wisdom and knowledge. What is his knowledge? In John 17, 3, Jesus is speaking. He says, this is, listen, this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God. This is eternal life, that they have knowledge of God. Not knowledge like head knowledge of facts, but knowledge as in a connection, an intimate relationship with God, to know God. So if you look at this, wisdom and knowledge, you see that wisdom applies to every aspect of our lives. It applies to the day-to-day, and godly knowledge applies to knowing God for the sake of eternity. Within this, you have wisdom and knowledge, daily life unto eternity. Paul is priming the pump. Do you want wisdom? you want knowledge? Seek Jesus. He's priming the pump because he's about to deal with false teachings that are coming into the Colossian church. Hang on to that. We'll come back to it. Christ has everything that they need. Let's go back to Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, verse 4. Let's pick up where we left off. So in him we have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 4, I say this. What am I saying? He's saying that in Christ we have all wisdom and knowledge to be found. Why is he saying this? In order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. That no one may deceive you, may bend your mind, may get you thinking otherwise from the truth. It's because there are people in the church that are trying to weave in, to water down the gospel and weave in their own agendas, their own teachings. 2 Timothy 4, verses 2 through 4 says, preach the word. This right here. Preach the word. Be ready in season to preach the word. Be ready out of season to preach the word. Use it to correct, to rebuke, to exhort with complete patience and teaching. For, listen, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires. And they're going to turn away from listening to truth and wander off into myths. See, sometimes, I mean, let's be real. Jackson, you with me? Let's be real. Sometimes truth is uncomfortable. Have you ever had your mom tell you a truth that, uh, yeah, didn't like that a bit? You probably like shut down. I don't want to listen to what you say. Right. I mean, yeah, I get that. You ever had a boss give you truth that was uncomfortable? A teacher? Sometimes, many times, the truth is uncomfortable. It grinds against everything we want to hear. But what's really easy is when truth is uncomfortable, 
it makes it really easy to buy in to a watered-down version of that, to an appealing one, one that's like, okay, I like that. I like the sound of that. Yeah, yeah, no, this is obviously true. That's it by human nature. This is how we are. It's subtle, but it's a powerful temptation to turn away from truth, to buy into plausible arguments and distortions, even buy into myths whenever they appeal to what we already want. Verse 5, for though I am absent in the body, right now Paul is in chains in Rome, in prison, even though I'm not there, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So he's saying, I don't even have to be there. I'm with you in spirit. Christ is with you. We're attached to the same Holy Spirit here, and you have all you need. You don't need me in person. You need Christ. And if you look at these words, there is the word good order and the word firmness. Now, these are both military words. I thought this was fascinating. Good order is the military word for lining up in formation. And firmness is the stability and formidability of a military formation. Think about Rome. Think about the phalanx of Roman soldiers. No one could compete against it. The barbarians threw themselves against it over and over again. It was worthless because the Romans, once they were in order, once they were in their shape, they were just a tank of human bodies plowing over every enemy. And Paul is saying, look, I am rejoicing. I am absolutely pumped that right now you are following truth. You're pushing after the things of Christ. You've been listening to Epaphras. But I'm warning you in advance. I'm warning you before you even begin to slip. Isn't it good to have a warning before we get in trouble? It's so much easier to course correct in advance than it is to clean up our mess. Oh, man, to quote my mom, uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Have you all heard that before? Because I heard it like every other day of my whole life from my mom. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Yes, mom, I have no idea what you're talking about. He's warning them in advance. Heresies are coming. Bad teachings are coming. Teachings that are going to tickle your ears. They're on the horizon. Course correct now. Stand firm, be formidable, unify together in good order and in firmness. Being prepared so that we don't have to clean up a mess after the fact really applies a lot more than you think. Because you, you kind of need to decide who you serve now before you're in a difficult circumstance. Think about it. Who do you serve? Do you serve Jesus and his word? Or do you serve yourself? Because suddenly you're gonna, you may find yourself unintentionally at a party where drinking's going on. And you shouldn't have to wait till that moment to decide who you serve. You should serve, you should decide now. Who am I? Who am I going to be in that moment? There may be a time that you're with a significant other and things are getting hot and heavy and you're like, wait a minute. I'm telling you, don't wait until you're in that moment to decide who you're going to serve. Because if it comes down to serving Jesus or serving your flesh in that moment, boy, this is a slippery slope. Decide now what you're going to do in those situations. Decide now what you're going to do when someone offers to give you the answers on a test in the moment. Decide now what you're going to do when you get caught 
And you have the opportunity to lie to get out of it. Who are you? Do you serve Jesus or do you serve yourself? Let's have a warning in advance before you even come into the difficult circumstance. Who do you serve? Colossians verse 6, chapter 2. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, that's an emphasis there. Do you know what Lord means? Someone yell it out. Master. Thank you, Sarah. Lord is just another word for master. Yeah. As in, he owns the rights to our lives. When we give our lives to Jesus, we're saying, I forfeit my rights to the one that I believe will care for me, will lead me, will correct me, will take me all the way through life into death. I belong to you. Who will you serve? Decide in advance, yourself or Jesus. Therefore, as you receive Jesus, they were taught by Epaphras. You learned about Jesus from Epaphras, Jesus the Lord. So walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. There's two things here. You have, so walk in him, rooted and built up, planted, foundation, and then the structure on top of that foundation. And he's making references to two places. The first is the very beginning of Psalms. Let's go there together. Keep your finger in Colossians, cut your Bible in half, and go to Psalm chapter 1. Rooted and built up. He's echoing Psalm 1 because he's trying to make a point. He wants you to get the full picture out of just referring to a couple words. Because they understood this context. They would have known Psalm 1. Psalm chapter 1, we're just going to read the first three verses. Blessed is the man, or woman, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but their delight is in the law, the word of God, the scriptures, the teachings of Jesus. Their delight is in the law of the Lord. And on the law, he meditates or she meditates day and night. He or she is like a tree planted, rooted, anchored by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither all that he or she does, they prosper. Paul wants us to be rooted, anchored at the river, soaking up the nutrients from the word of God. That's what the river is in Psalm 1. It's the word of God. It's the law of God, his instructions, his self-revelation of who he is. Right here is our anchor. And built up, that's a reference to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 7, where he talks about his words, and he says, if you listen to my words and you do them, you listen to my words, word of God, and you do them, you're like a person who builds their house on a rock, on a solid foundation. You have the foundation, it's solid, and then you build on it. You grow it from there. But if you hear my words and don't do what I'm teaching, then it's like building your house on sand. You have no root system. So when you build, you have nothing to build on. And when the storm comes, <laughs> Ida. So what will we root in? Will we root in the, God, in the word of God? Will we root in the philosophies of the world around us? I 
Our theology, our understanding of God affects every aspect of our lives. Every aspect. It defines who you'll spend time with. It defines what you'll do with your time. It defines how you speak. It defines what purpose you have in life. It defines where you land. It defines who you marry. It defines everything about you. So men and women of God, we have to begin to have a rich diet of God's word, a rich diet of sound biblical teaching in our lives. We can't have fluff. We have to have, think about a diet. Think about how people eat and how it affects everything else. They're linking poor eating with depression. You're like, yeah, a box of donuts makes me happy. Yeah, for a second. They're beginning to understand the science of diets in entirely new ways. What about our, what about our diet of the word of God? Tell me, are you only eating once a week when you show up at Elevate or show up at church? Is that it? Is that sufficient? What podcasts are you listening to? What sermons are you invested in? Who are the speakers that are pouring into your life on a regular basis? Are you opening God's word for yourself and being nourished from it, from the stream of life so that you can bear fruit that doesn't wither? We have to have a diet of rich, biblically-based theology. Our faith can't be based on our feelings. I've been a youth pastor too long to tragically see students come back from camp highs and they're sure that they're close to God because they feel emotional about God and they just know they love him and they just know that God loves them back. And then 24 hours happens and 48 hours and two weeks and suddenly they're not so sure if God loves them anymore. They're not sure if they love God anymore. Why? Because their anchor is rooted in how they feel instead of rooted in the truth of God's word. You don't have to question. Your relationship with the Lord doesn't have to go up and down based on feelings. Your rich diet gives you assurance and encouragement and unity with the body of Christ. So Paul has told them that he wants them to be encouraged. He's told them he wants them to have unity. He wants them to rest in assurance because their captain, Jesus, is on the court with them. In Christ, they have all that they need. They have all wisdom for daily life. They have all knowledge for eternal life. They have everything they need. And he's warned them not to give in to plausible arguments. And now Paul is going to poke this philosophy, this theology, this bad teaching that's working its way into the church of Colossians. It's in verse 8. Oh, I'll go back to Colossians myself. Chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the word and not according to Christ. That phrase, let them take you captive, think about that. Think about what an abduction looks like. Let them not take you captive. In fact, the Greek word here is the word that they used for when pirates would board a ship and steal its cargo. 
It's very violent. It's very shocking. It's supposed to make you flinch a little bit. Don't let them take you captive by their bad philosophies, by their twisted suggestions. Don't let them take you captive. It's all empty deceit. It's all coming from human tradition. That word philosophy, we can't see it in English, but I found out that it actually has a little article, a, gram a grammatical article in front of it, which is the philosophy, which scholars are pretty sure means that this, this bad teaching coming into the church actually had a title, and it was called the philosophy. So coming into this church of Colossae, you have Jesus being taught, Christ being taught, but then you have this movement of bad theology, and they call themselves, or they call what they believe, the philosophy. Remember, that's what Greeks were driving towards. That's what they wanted. They wanted philosophy. And it was taking captive. It was this false teaching. That phrase, elemental spirits, is really weird. It's actually the word that they would find in magical texts or astrology charts. It's the idea that as they're worshiping Christ, there's this belief, this the philosophy that's coming in, and it's actually promoting religious traditions that you find in pagan demon worship, these elemental spirits that they're taking the traditions from the pagan surrounding religions and weaving them into the church. False teachers are trying to infuse the church with practices that come from pagan worships. We're going to get more clues about that in verses 20 through 23. We'll get there soon. It talks about the elemental spirits again and talks about the appearance of wisdom. But despite appealing like it's wisdom and like it's knowledge through the philosophy, it's nothing more than just lies. It's you need to buy this pen. What you have isn't enough. Christ isn't enough. You're going to need Jesus plus. We have more to offer than what you have right now. Let me tell you about the perks. Let me create a need. Jesus isn't enough, but we have more to offer. At the same time, Paul is saying, you already have all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom. This makes me think of Adam and Eve. Remember Adam and Eve? Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. And what's the serpent's lie? If you eat this, you can be more like him. To the very person that was made in his image. Eve, Adam, you're not there yet. You can have more than what you have right now when they were already sufficiently anchored in the relationship with the God who loves them and created them. There was no more to reach for. To quote Jimmy Needham, the serpent convinced perfectly healthy, well-fed people that they were starving to death. This also makes me think of internet clickbait. Thank you, Brian, for this example. Do we have the picture? Think about this. This is so great. Thank you, Brian, for passing this on. You see this kind of garbage all the time when you're on the internet. Don't click on it. It's bad news. But look at this. You have, what, running water with a cracked egg, and then it says, the top heart surgeon. This simple trick helps you empty your bowels in the morning. So connect for me somehow 
with the need for emptying your bowels has to do with the heart surgeon, has to do with... But what does it do? It creates mystery. It throws out this fantastic promise. You have a need. We're going to solve your need. We're going to create this fantastic idea. And it's just ludicrous. It's just lies. It's empty deceit. We have philosophy swirling around us all the time promoting this. Thank you. You can take the screen off. So I've got sort of a fun illustration for you. And if I could have Pat and Elijah come up. Pat, you're going to be behind the table I'm carrying. Elijah, you're going to be behind the table over here. There you go. You just set it down right there. Perfect. So what we have here, we have four covered buckets, right? And I'm going to tell you in advance that there is, under these four buckets, a sum total of $10. I'm going to pick out two volunteers. The volunteer will come down, and they will get to keep, they will choose only one, and they will get to keep whatever is beneath that bucket. You know what's really cool about Christ? is he called him a mystery revealed. I like my Vanna White hands. Yes. A mystery revealed, uncovered. All right, so Pat, would you please sell us on choosing your bucket? My beautiful clear bucket underneath has a nice, beautiful, crisp $10 bill. It's not fake. It's not imaginary. It's there. I see it. I know what a real $10 bill looks like because I've been to the Bureau of Printing in Washington, D.C., and I took a whole tour. This is a legitimate $10 bill. And remember, I might add, he did say that under the sum total of the four buckets was how much? $10. You have something to say? Shall I remove these? No. Okay. All right, first of all, how many of you like money? That's a lot of you. How many of you have a lot of money? Okay. I know that he said there are $10. Okay. But what are here, here, and here are not dollars. They are gift cards. $20 gift cards to, it's Chick-fil-A. So you can settle. You can take what you were told, or if you have a little faith, you can come look at the mystery here and take Chick-fil-A. Yeah. All right, I need a volunteer. Yes, come on down. All right, stand right here. All right, so who thinks he ought to go with Pat's option? Who thinks he ought to take Elijah's option? All right, so which way are you going to go? Take it away. Get that bucket, bro. And what did you find? Nothing. <laughs> All right, I need apparently one more volunteer. Miley. All right, Miley. Who thinks Miley ought to go with Pats? Don't go that way, Miley. Oh. To Pat or to Elijah? All right, you have three seconds. Three, two, one. Select. 
And what did you find? Absolutely nothing. There are many, many voices, and they use the attractive nature of mystery and sensational promises and fast gratification to convince you that what they have is better than what you already have. But Jesus is all wisdom revealed that he is the obvious. He is all wisdom. He is all knowledge. He is totally sufficient for our needs. But there is nothing but deceit and empty buckets in the other philosophies. And how can we know that we trust Jesus? Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. For in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Referring back to Colossians. How can we trust Jesus? Why can we trust Jesus? Because he is the God that knows everything. He is the God that is all knowledge, that is all wisdom. And that God proved himself by raising himself from the dead, which no mere man can do. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. You are in him and he is in you. So I'll warn you, there are many attractive philosophies. But I want to throw out just two. One outside the church and one in the church. Not technically our church, but capital C, around the world, Christian church. Outside the church, there is the philosophy, the very appealing, desirable, ear-itching, ear-tickling philosophy that there is no such thing as truth. There's no such thing as objective truth or objective morality. You can have freedom in your expression, your identity, your morality, in whatever you want, because there's no such thing as objective truth. Do whatever you feel. You be you. You live your truth. And no one is allowed to infringe on your truth or they are automatically wrong by default. Do whatever you see is right in your eyes. And anyone who comes against you is automatically wrong. There is no such thing as objective truth. Think of how appealing that is. I get to do what I want. And that's this philosophy that's saying, look, under here, it's great under here. Come and buy this. You get to feel free. You get to just be yourself. You're going to be satisfied. Depression's going to flitter away. Everything's going to be so much better when you have what's under here. And we have over here that God says, you know what? I actually have a law. I actually demand holiness for my people, the self-sacrifice of their entire lives to serve me as their Lord and Master. But I've revealed to you that right here is the only satisfaction you'll ever know because over there is nothing but lies and deceit. Over here it takes repentance. It's uncomfortable. It's daily. But right here, the God of your heart of all life who loved you so much to die for you, is offering the only satisfaction you can have. And it's eternal satisfaction. The other philosophy, one that's actually kind of within the Christian church around the world, is the word of faith movement, or maybe the prosperity gospel. The idea that God has given you and I some of his sovereignty that he has the benefits of health, and he has the benefits of wealth and all kinds of blessings that we can unlock 
if we do certain things, if we say certain prayers, if we know how to demand certain things of him, if we just have enough faith, we can unlock the blessings that God is withholding. He has this storehouse of good stuff, and until we have enough faith, we're not going to get it. It's attractive because it puts the power into your hands and my hands. You get to have some control over whether or not you're blessed. If you're willing to go down to the car lot and you march around it seven times, the car that you want, and you declare that this is your car in the name of Jesus, guess what? God just might do it for you if you have enough faith. So right here, here's my faith level. I can pray for a headache and it'll go away. And if I can get my faith level up here, now I can pray for someone with cancer to get better. If I can pray for up here, we can raise the dead together. I have the power if I can just summon in me, in me, and totally removes God's sovereignty over our lives and over the future, that we will have what God chooses for us to have because he is crafting our lives to be sanctified and more like him, that every suffering and every blessing is a tool that he is using. Do you know why God knows what's going to happen in the future? Here's a silly illustration. I had a friend come to me and said, I predict there's going to be a hole in your cupcake. His prediction came to pass. Do you know why God knows what's going to happen in the future? Because God does the future. Omnipotent, sovereign, omniscient, all-wise God stands outside of time and has done it. So that he can say, this is what will come to pass. I can swear by my own name that I do not change. It will happen. Why? Because it's done. According to his infinite power and his sovereign will. So beware of philosophies. They're just empty buckets. And they can say the most appealing, desirable things. They can put up the best clickbait. They know how we work. When Christ has already been revealed, and all of it, all, gosh, $10 seems to undersell this pretty terribly. But everything that there is, we can find in Christ. Recap. We can be encouraged, we can be unified, and we can rest in assurance because of Jesus. In Christ, we have all that we need for life and eternity through wisdom and the knowledge of God. It's in God's word that we find solid foundation and formidable construction. Don't be deceived by philosophies from outside the church or even in the church, which are counter to biblical teaching. We already have all we need. Everything else is empty. Remember that tree planted by the water and the house is built on a rock? How are we anchored? What are we built up on? We have to study. We have to have a consistent diet of God's word. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you that in your providence, three out of three people chose the empty buckets to hopefully leave a mark in our minds of what the world really has to offer and how enticing it can be. Let us remember it. Thank you, Lord, that you are good. And though your offer comes at the price of our very lives, it is an offer that you paid for with yours because of your love, because you have a future and a hope for your people. 
Thank you, Lord, for saving us, for cleansing us of our sin, that we could know you through Jesus. Lord, we surrender our hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus.